0: Scripture this morning is John 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 21. Yes, that's right. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need a man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it is coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you did not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been through God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: bow your heads with me once more God we rest with you this morning as the buses drove by and people walked by this building with our windows open I was just overcome by the reality that we exist as a people of you in a city that largely does not know you God you have put us here for a purpose Um, and how can we be of any influence unless we truly sit here today desiring for you to remake us so god remake us remake me as i proclaim your word may it be clear may it be relevant in jesus name amen Alex Gibney is a very well-known documentary filmmaker. Of course, I come from a background in documentary film. But you may know some of his films. Uh, His focus is on people who lie. Uh, His most well-known breakout film, Enron, the smartest man in the room about Enron, and in the case of corporate corruption, where even at the highest levels, these guys were able to get away with just the most ridiculous sums of money Uh, essentially white-collared stealing, Uh, to his film, Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, where he investigates and tries his best to infiltrate in what he believes is a place full of lies and corruption, to a more recent film, The Armstrong Lie, about Lance Armstrong, who lied to the very end, (laughs) practically to the point where he could not get away with it any longer because he had been found out about his use of performance-enhancing drugs. And Gibney at in, in the Melbourne International Film Festival was interviewed uh, by, a, by a guy named David Pollan for, for the Melbourne Film Festival. And he was talking about the state and the nature of filmmaking and news and how we tell stories. And he said this, he says he disagrees with the view from nowhere, which is this idea that journalists have that we can have news that is truly objective that we can have news that tells us the unbiased truth and he says this quote objectivity is dead there is no such thing as objectivity when you're making a film a film can't be objective i agree with alex gibney when i was cutting and editing films it's clear that your hands are all over the stories that you are making that purport to be truth, that are seen by people as truth. But of course, we know now that it is naive to think that. I remember in college, uh, I had grown up thinking, you can believe what's on TV. You can believe the news, right? You can believe what's broadcast from, in my day, Peter Jennings on the 6 o'clock news on ABC. You can believe that because that is the unbiased truth. But, of course, now I look back and I think how silly I was. Because in our day and age, we know probably better than anything else in this era of purported fake news, in this era of media bias, that that is no longer the case. I remember in college I read a book called The New Media Monopoly, and the idea was just that all of this was so tied into money and politics and power. And so Gibney purports what we all know, that humans are inherently untrustworthy, which is a bold statement for him to make because he's making films that are taking down people with great lies, and he's essentially saying, yes, you can't trust them, and I'm gonna try and take them down, but also you can't trust me. Also, my films are inherently untrustworthy because there is no such thing as objective truth in Gibney's mind, that it can't be conveyed. Well, perhaps it's a little bit heartening that when we start this passage, looking at the story of Nicodemus, that we see that Jesus is in on that story certainly long before I was. He didn't live his youth thinking that there, was, that there was some sense of human objectivity. It says in verse 23 that now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Those his great miracles, many of which John doesn't record. So this isn't just the wedding at Cana. These are other, perhaps, healings. We don't know what they are. Public evidence of a a man working miracles. He says, but Jesus on his part, I'm reading the ESV here, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself Knew what was in man. Now you can't read that statement and not understand what it means, right? That Jesus himself knew that in man was something that was inherently untrustworthy. Just as Gibney astutely preserves in his hard boiled journalism take, Jesus is saying, Yes, I agree with you there. I agree with you that we can't take man at his word, that only Jesus knows what is in man and women and humankind deep in their hearts. And so in this series, I don't know if any of you have checked on the website, I haven't talked about it much in this series here, but I subtitled it, Conversations Between the Creator and the Created. And I think it's a good way to think of every conversation that happens in these stories, that we have Jesus, God in the flesh, creator of all mankind speaking to mankind. And so we have this understanding in each story that the objective rubs up against the subjective. That the gibneys of the world are the people that Jesus is talking to that are crafting realities. But Jesus knows the true reality underneath of it all. And every time we talk to Jesus, he knows our true reality. He knows what is deep in our heart. And he knows this. He knows that believers, believers in Jesus, are undependable. We have evidence of this. Peter is a great example, right? Talk about an undependable believer. We have all of church history as evidence of this. That all throughout church history, there is so much evidence that while we get many things right, and our hearts are often in the right places, still we are capable of great evils, even as Christians. And then, of course, if we're honest, we are our own evidence that we are undependable believers. And so I start here in this passage as a way to sort of slip in, zoom in out of the principle into the specific. Look at this tie-in here. In verse 27, it says, For he himself knew what was in man. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. That's the tie-in that's being made. That's the abstract coming to the particular of saying, Jesus knows what's in man. Here's an example of one of those men, and his name is Nicodemus. Let's zoom in on this story. Who was Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee, but he was also a ruler. We don't really have anything quite like that in our society. This was a teacher of the law. This was, you could call it, I guess, a pastor, although it's different than that perhaps more than that in some ways. But he was also a ruler of the Jews. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a a particular group in each city of those teachers who also acted as a judge. Cases were brought before them among the Jewish people, and the Sanhedrin declared guilty or innocent. The Sanhedrin upheld the idea of moral truth. And so here we have a man who is, in every sense of the word, orthodox. We proclaim to be Christians who are orthodox, right? We have right thinking is what that means. We have right thinking. Here's a man with right thinking. And then here we have a record of his examination by the creator, who doesn't just have right thinking, but has right knowing, who rightly knows his heart, Romans 8:26 says this, it says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, Paul in Romans is talking about this objectivity, this all knowingness, the creatorness of Jesus. And how, even better than we know ourselves, he knows us. So, in some sense, while Gibney was right that there is no such thing as objectivity, it's dead, he's wrong. There is one who is objective, there is one who knows. And I think Gibney, deep down, would have to admit that he has some sense of that reality because he is after truth. He is after taking down people with lies. He is after some sense of justice, but he doesn't, to my knowledge, have a sense of that objective reality that we face here. Now, interestingly, Nicodemus thinks he does. Nicodemus, from all appearances, is a man who is in the right, right? Who, while he is subjective, he is so superiorly subjective. He is so superiorly intellectual. He would be part of what we would call the intelligentsia an Ivy Leaguer, a, a, a professor that speaks on speaking tours. And he is in a boxing match with the Almighty God. Here, a man with power and privilege comes up against Jesus. And we find this. We find first that he comes, how? By the night. He comes by the night to Jesus. I think first reading is pretty accurate here. While people, commentators have taken different stances on this, I think it's fair to say Nicodemus wanted to figure this out on his own. He didn't want anyone to know. So he comes under the cover of Darkness. Whenever we do anything under the cover of darkness, why are we doing it? Secrecy for our own protection and to have control. So Nicodemus, thinking quite highly of himself, thinks, I can do this and no one will know. Because deep inside of me, I also, I have this sense of what the kids are saying nowadays is called FOMO, fear of missing out. That Nicodemus has seen the signs and the wonders and he's heard the tales and he says, I've got to figure this out. I have a fear of missing out. So I'm going to go in the secrecy of the night, even though it would blow all of my cover if anybody knew I was doing this. Nicodemus is actually taking a gamble with his power and his privilege just by going to see Jesus because Jesus would have had the disciples somewhere in the room, right? There would have been some sense in knowing that Nicodemus had visited Jesus. And Nicodemus is skating on thin ice. And Nicodemus comes into this story seeking in some ways, I think, to have what in business we would call an arm's length transaction. You ever heard that term? An arm's length transaction is this, that you would have two parties that have no friendships going on, no ulterior motives, nothing that can be used to coerce or pressure, that this is just two completely independent people coming together to make a very professional business transaction, and both of them have the power to decide the ways that they're going to go after that. Both of them have autonomy, both of them have a sense of independence, and when we hear about an arm's length transaction in that way, it sounds quite nice, sounds appropriate. I mean, business should work that way. We like having those kinds of things, that seems right. But in Nicodemus's case, we can see that while he desires to have this arm-length transaction, he does it under the cover of night. He does it in a way that he in some ways knows is, is dangerous. And actually, the arm's length transaction for him is an attempt to have control. It's an attempt to have power. It's an attempt to be in the driver's seat, as we would say. And he says this to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things, meaning the miracles and signs, these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus' fear of missing out is based on this real belief, this real spark that says there is something about this that I must know. But Jesus, remember, is a very unpopular person with the Pharisees. So, so Nicodemus comes, and he tries to stay at arm's length. He says, I'm going to control this whole situation, and I'm going to try to figure out as best I can what is going on, because I can't dispute these things I say. And Jesus answers him and says, truly, truly. He's actually saying, amen, amen. And you can see him taking a deep breath. You can see Nicodemus in this sort of fear. Both the fear of missing out and the fear of moving into this space with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, deep breath. Truly, truly. I say to you, Nicodemus, to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My uh, pastor that mentors me, his name's John Johnson. He says, he wrote a book on, on this uh, passage. And he says, here, Jesus takes it from the theological to the gynecological. He takes it from the, the talk of God to the talk of birth. It's as if he's saying, not so fast. He's saying, let me throw you a left turn. He says, you want better sight? I am going to say that you only can get it from being born again. And so what Jesus is in saying here is he's saying, you want it at arm's length, I'll keep it at arm's length. You can, only give what I, you can only get what I give. But I don't want it that way. I don't want to keep it that way. If you look at the definition of arm's length, You get the business transaction, but you also get it in the personal sense. And here's what it means in the personal sense. Avoiding intimacy or close contact. Keeping distance. Untrusting. And so Jesus says, I'm going to take your arm's length transaction for me for what it is. You want the goods without the relationship. And I'm going to call you out on it. If you want to keep it arm's length, fine, we'll keep it at arm's length. But you can't have what you want to know. And so here's what Jesus does in this act. Every time we encounter Jesus and we are trying to keep things at arm's length, he pulls us inward. He pulls us into uncomfortableness. He pulls us out of the professional into the personal. And he says this, there is no way for you to know me unless we make this personal. There is no way for you to know me Unless you get what's at stake. You're pretending to think that your subjective view of how this is. As an undependable believer, no matter how right thinking you are. You're just kidding yourself to think you will get answers about the kingdom. Without making your relationship with Jesus personal. The words for born again here. We've heard this phrase so many times. It's just tired. It's a tired phrase. It's a cliche phrase. Hey, are you a born again? I was, in, I was in Africa, and I was at an orphanage in Africa in college. And that's what every kid would say. Not, are you a Christian? Hey, are you born again? It was their way of differentiating between sort of the evangelicals and I think the Catholics, different groups. So they had this code word, are you born again, as their way. And so we've heard this word so many times that we, just, we, synon- we make it synonymous with Christian. Of course I'm born again. The actual word, the Greek word anothen, means are you born all over again from above? So here's what Jesus is saying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born all over again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the way that Jesus makes this personal is he says you want to keep what you have. In a business sense, you want to keep all your assets to yourself. He says, but the reality is, you can't know it until you sort of chip in for it. He's calling his bluff. He's saying, put your chips in. He's saying, you can't actually know me until we have a relationship with each other. We do, in effect, this same thing all the time in the digital space online. We scout things out. We scout people out. We look at their Instagram feeds and their Facebook feeds and we look at everything and we try to get to know them without being known. And what he's saying here is, Nicodemus, you do the same thing with God. You try to know everything about him, you try to intellectualize him, you try to figure it all out to decide if you're ever going to step in and actually get involved and make it messy and have him know you. But you're just kidding yourself because he already knows you. He's saying it's as if as you're scrolling through those Instagram feeds, you finally find out that the person that you're spying on, essentially, can see that you're doing it. He says, that's God. He knows the joke is up. And it's interesting, too, that he says he uses this particular phrase with who? With Nicodemus. Next chapter, we're going to look at the woman at the well. He doesn't use the phrase born again with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. No, he uses that you must be born all over again from above, from a man who all will already thought he was born rightly, from a man that already thinks he's in the right place doing all of the right things. This is an orthodox man, right? A man with right thinking. And he says, you have it wrong. You need to start over. It's as if Jesus walks up to a PhD divinity teacher and says, your degree doesn't matter to me. Everything you study doesn't matter in the kingdom. You need to start over by following me. Me, an upstart, scrappy rabbi with a group of ragtag disciples from all over the Jewish countryside who are causing chaos and problems for the powers that be, who are distinctly not people of privilege, at least not uniformly, He says, you got to come and be with us. And it's going to mean stepping down from your ivory tower. It's going to mean risking being wrong fairly frequently. So this is language that Jesus is using with the religious. It's as if Jesus walked into this church right now and said, no, no, all of you, you all need to be born again from above if you want to know the kingdom. And before we think, well, I'm not a person of power and privilege... Let's make it a little relative. Let's make it a little more global. Here's a few surprising statistics. I think this is as of 2011. That 76% of the globe is either poor or low income. Um, Pew defines the poor and living, a uh, poor, as living on less than $2 a day. So that's that's the. That's the poor. The low income live on between $2 and $10 daily. That's $300 a month for a family of four. So what he's saying is if you're, what this statistic is saying is you're above that, you're in the top 24% globally. So just the fact for most of us that we live in America means that we wield tremendous power and privilege. That Jesus is talking to us, and as I said last week, we ought not to put ourselves in the place of Jesus judging Nicodemus, the self-righteous, but we ought to put ourselves in the place of Nicodemus being questioned by the Creator. If we want to grow in our faith, we will put ourselves in the place of the sinners in the stories and seek to learn how it is that we are so much like them. He wants to pull Nicodemus in, and so this is essentially what he says. He says, you need to be born again in order to even see. You're a person who wants to see. In order to see, you need to begin apprenticing, which is how it worked back then. When you followed Jesus, when you followed a rabbi, you gave up your life, and you went with them, you traveled with them, you studied with them, you ate with them, you learned almost by what we would call osmosis, right? Absorbing every mannerism every way they deal with every problem, that this was to apprentice in Jesus. And he's using this kind of language, born again, because he's actually saying this, look, we all have a family of origin. To be a Christian, you need to unlearn your family of origin. What do I mean by that? Uh, We actually abide by a certain sense of moral, religious truth just from our upbringing. Uh, Here's a a great religious proverb from some of your upbringing. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's the kind of religious proverbs that we learn growing up. And he's saying you need to unlearn. You need to be willing to let go of any of your family of origin, any of that wisdom, any of that religion that you grew up with. You need to let go of it, and you need to begin to learn my kingdom ways. Okay. So we get it. Now Nicodemus says to him, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it's almost laughable, this phrase. Because in one level, especially I think when we put ourselves in the place of Jesus and identify with him, we say, Ah, Nicodemus is such an idiot. This guy just doesn't get it. Man, all those people with power and privilege, they just don't get it. They're all like Nicodemus. They don't even get the simplest of arguments, not like I do, not like I do with Jesus. No, I think Nicodemus gets everything that Jesus is sending. And he's just participating in his metaphor. Nicodemus is a smart guy. He's saying, I think I know what you mean. Okay, then tell me this. How can a man actually give all of that stuff up? How can you unlearn your family of origin? Old dogs can't learn new tricks. I'm always going to be who I'm going to be. How is it wrong that everything I've learned, how is that all wrong? How is that not like the world of God who I study, Jesus? And then he says, how can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And I just love Jesus. Jesus has a sense of decorum and respect. We just saw a debate that had literally no sense of respect or decorum. No sense of a pause with truly, truly, I tell you. And here Jesus, in a heated situation, bucking heads in a boxing match between two intellectuals, between two religious, between two leaders. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is the born of the Spirit is Spirit. So Jesus does this, he goes... Paws. I'm going to tell it to you again. It's going to hurt even more this time. And you say, John, why is that? Why would it hurt even more of this? It just seems like he's getting a little more specific. No, he is directly citing John the Baptist style of baptism. Which the Pharisees had flocked out to the wilderness and disputed and said, this is ridiculous. Why are you doing these purifying baptisms? Why are you proclaiming all this nonsense? It wasn't from their power structure. It wasn't from their authority. It wasn't from the places in the system of the religious space that were all set up to operate a certain way. It was from the fringes. It was from the space in the wilderness. Where people had come out communicating from God. People had come and lived through it. Where John the Baptist had been anointed to do this. And it had rubbed the Pharisees in such a wrong way. And he says, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like that baptism that they were doing. The purification baptism. Which you disagree with. That's that's just a hint of what it starts to look like. So here's what Jesus is doing. Pick a situation right now that makes you defensive. Which you're struggling with. Which people purport to be Christians and involved with. Pick one. There are so many. That makes you defensive. That makes you go, oh, I just, don't, I just don't think they can be Christian. Jesus is taking that instance. He's taking something in that theme and he's putting it in front of Nicodemus. And he's saying, I'm challenging you right now. He's saying, what about water baptism and baptism of the spirit, essentially? And worse yet, he's actually saying that 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 water baptism is a baptism of repentance. And he's saying, so only one who is born of the water, Nicodemus, he's saying only one who is repentant of all of their right thinking, which was in fact proven wrong by Jesus, can begin to see the kingdom. It's a challenge to us. And what does Nicodemus do? He waffles. He waffles around. Jesus says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone that is born of the spirit. So Jesus is saying, I think we've come to an impasse here. And I'm going to declare the objective truth of things. And if you want to stick with your subjectivity. And you want to stick with your view. And you want to take the created view over the creator's view. I don't think we can go any further. You certainly won't be entering the kingdom. But it's not because it's not open to you. It's because you're not willing to repent of those things which you were right about. Which you're actually wrong about. And I think Nicodemus actually really understands this. I think he knows it. And I think the reason that he waffles is because he is drawn to the clear sense that this is Jesus, that this is God, that this is a man with God. He's seen and heard of the miracles. But he's afraid of what it will cost him. That's why he comes in the night. He's afraid. Nicodemus is what we would call a centrist. Somebody who's trying to diplomatically work between two polarized sides, right? He's saying, no, there's gotta be some middle ground where I stay safe and I'm not in danger, and I can be comfortable, and I can be right. The true moderate, right? No, there's a solution where everybody, at least if not everybody's happy, it's the right way and I can be happy, and it somehow blends the two in the right way. There's a center road. I just got to find it. Because Nicodemus operates out of this concept. Ed Ed Welch wrote this book called When People Are Big and God is Small. I read it uh, I've read it recently, looked through it, and the concept there is just what the title says. For many of us who find our places in these diplomatic spaces where we're trying to make everybody happy and make everything work, where we're trying to keep keep comfortable, the reality is that we've placed our trust in man and we've desired peace with man over conviction and peace with God. And so what happens is we do things like Nicodemus. We waffle all around. We try and make everybody happy. We try and just get through it. Can we just get through it peacefully, everybody? And so what Nicodemus is, I think, in some ways doing is he's coming to Jesus hoping that Nicodemus can stay Nicodemus and the Pharisees can stay the Pharisees and somehow they can all get along and play together. And Jesus puts down the gauntlet and he says no. He says all those things you've been speaking out against actually I am the fulfillment of those. Not just I side with those. I am the ultimate manifestation of those. To know God, you must, not just, you must begin at those places. So I think with Nicodemus then, we have to take a minute and say, okay, we only get so much from this story. But what's actually going on with this individual? Where is he being taken? What's the character arc of Nicodemus? There's there's three texts in the book of John about Nicodemus. This is obviously the most robust and full, but there's actually two other points at which Nicodemus comes up in the story. The first is in chapter 7, verse 45. This is in a more mature stage of Jesus' ministry. It says this, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke of this man. And the Pharisees answered him, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? In, believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So they're arguing right now. Sorry, there's a lot of pronouns in here. They're arguing about the reality of Jesus' miracles. And they're downplaying and they're poo-pooing it and they're saying no. They're saying, are you really buying this stuff? And in verse 50, Nicodemus says this. He says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So what Nicodemus is doing is they're saying, look, have any of you even talked to Jesus or the people he's healed? Have, any of you, have you, any of you done this? Do you guys believe in him? They're operating on all of this hearsay. And Nicodemus is saying, look, by your own laws, you need to bring somebody in front of you and question them in the flesh. If you're going, if you're going to begin to take this angle, and if you're going beginning to attack Jesus, And you're beginning to accuse him because that's what they're beginning to do. He says, you need to bring him before you because those are your own rules. So Nicodemus, in the centrist opinion here, is saying, okay, you guys, the Pharisees, have rules. I'm sympathetic to Jesus. I want you to abide by your rules and try him like you would try anyone else. So we can see here that Nicodemus has a little bit of a sympathy. And this is what they do to him. Interestingly, they also force his hand. They reply and they say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So while Nicodemus, his people are big for Nicodemus. He wants to make everybody happy. But the reality is it's impossible to make two diametrically opposed people happy with each other. And God is small for Nicodemus at this point, but he's sympathetic to him. He's gone and visited Jesus. He knows that this is not a, if you tried this guy before you, you wouldn't find that he's some horrible monster. But actually, he's very respectful. He's very peaceable. And instantly they say, no, we know what we know. Nicodemus, are you from Galilee like Jesus? there 's like, get out of here. So Nicodemus is not friends with anybody because of his arm's length style because of his professionalism and centricity and trying to be always in the place of comfort and the place of rightness he actually gets shot down by both Jesus and his colleagues Henry Nowen writes this he says to his colleagues the Pharisees Nicodemus said our law does not allow us to pass judgment on anyone without first giving him a hearing and discovering what he is doing these are careful words. They are spoken to people who hate Jesus, but they are spoken on their terms. They say, even if you hate Jesus and desire to kill him, Nicodemus' words say, even if you hate Jesus and desire to kill him, do not lose your dignity. Follow the rules. Nicodemus says, said it to save Jesus, but he also didn't want to lose his friends, and it didn't work. He was ridiculed by his friends. Now and says his personal and professional identity are attacked. Okay. So that's the that's the middle act of Nicodemus' story. We only have so much to go by here. So that's the middle act. Here's the last act for Nicodemus' story. John nineteen thirty eight. Jesus has just died on the cross. Here's the story. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took of the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. proceeds to talk about how they lay him in the tomb and wrap him in these spices well first of all we wouldn't have any clue the significance of this but these are spices this volume of spices is fit for royalty it must come from wealth it's an extremely expensive amount of, of spices but it also is the kind of spices that you would only give fit for a king So D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, John may be telling us by this action that Nicodemus shows he is stepping out of the darkness and emerging into the light. Perhaps this is Nicodemus coming around. Other commentators have said, this is such a crazy amount of spices, it can only be driven by a deep sense of regret and guilt. I actually think those things can both be true. That Nicodemus can deeply regret and feel so guilty that he didn't stand up for Jesus more. In front of those Pharisees. He can deeply regret that he was always trying to take the center and never took a stand. He can deeply regret that he was always trying to cover his own skin, right? He was always trying to protect himself, these secret meetings in the night, that he didn't jump on board with Jesus, and now he is. Now he's coming out of the darkness into the light. I think it theologically fits the story. But we must see in this arc, as we begin to see Nicodemus' whole arc, that this is, the, this is the end of Nicodemus' kind of professional arm's length thinking with Jesus. That in essence, what happened with Nicodemus is that his practical witness during Jesus' ministry was crippled by his desire to maintain his power and his privilege. There was a certain waste that in his short time with Jesus, he hid In the shadows. Now, it says that Jesus not only had good and faithful friends who were willing to follow him wherever he went, and fierce enemies who couldn't wait to get rid of him, but also many sympathizers like Nicodemus, who were attracted but afraid at the same time. So, as we see Nicodemus's ark, this is my prayer. For us. This is my application for this particular part of the passage. I think what Nouwen's latching onto, to, what Carson is showing, what they're all talking about, is that we can easily become an admirer of Jesus. We can easily become somebody who tries to keep everything in our life in balance in the status quo, who tries to have essentially two families of origin. We want to be loyal my, my parents were just visiting in town, and the desire, of course, is to be loyal to your parents. To, to be fitting of the way you were brought up. That's a deep, inner desire. But Jesus constantly says, look, your family of origin, your place, your professional colleagues, your education, all of these things that are of the world of untrustworthy and undependable people, you must put at a lower priority than you put me So that you are not an admirer. I'm not content with admirers. If you are an admirer of me, I will pull you in closer. So we're no longer at arm's length. And I will do it in ways that might make you defensive. I might even do it by your deep regret and guilt like he did with Nicodemus. To bring him around. Because he doesn't want us to look back like Nicodemus looked back. That, isn't, that wasn't Jesus' desire that Nicodemus potentially would have that regret and guilt. And he doesn't desire that for us. He says, be born again. So, what we have following this story, I'll only paint in broad strokes. You, you probably noticed the most famous verse in the entire Bible is in this Interchange. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the center post in what appears, through the most unlikely of circumstances, to be in the book of John the most deeply gospel sermon so far. Everything else Jesus has done has been minimal. A few sentences here, a few sentences here. This is a long Discourse in which Jesus' primary purpose is to proclaim the gospel. And he does this in a few interesting ways. So I'm not going to go word for word in this section. I'm going to talk in more general terms for us for a second. The first thing he does is he takes the old, for Nicodemus, the old tried and true stories, and he makes them new. How does he do that? Verse 21. Sorry, you guys, I'm looking for a second here. Sorry. Verse 14. He says this. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. So we have heard the term born again over and over. We've heard John 3.16 over and over so the point where these things begin to not have meaning anymore and we need to make them real stories and so that's exactly what Jesus does with nicodemus he says look there's a story back in the time of moses that you as a pharisee would know really really well and we find it in numbers 21 of course we don't know the story as well as nicodemus was but i'll try and give us a little bit of context so we can understand what's happening he is talking about a time in which the children of israel were beset by poisonous snakes, and they were dying. And I always have this vision of just like a a field of people dying, right? And Moses is walking through, and he has been told to create a serpent on a staff. And if people so much as look at it, they will be healed. He says this, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And so Jesus is saying, look, I know a really good story that you know really well. I'm going to show you how I'm in that. I'm going to show you how the gospel is in that thing that is tired and old for you, that you could recite in your sleep, and I'm going to make it fresh and new. The power of the gospel lies for us in the hard work of application. That's what this tells me. That Jesus says these things to Nicodemus, and they are not easy, cliche, trite truths that are like Sunday school, yeah, I know that, tell me the real meat. He is saying, remember that thing that you say, I know that? That's me, the guy that you're having difficulty with. He says, you know that thing about the gospel? That's you needing to be born again, and it's really difficult. It's not just some already done that easy thing. It is today. It's looking at you in the face. It's the dilemma you have. It's the moral and ethical conflicts you face. It's the things that eat away at your heart. You have to realize that what you're searching for in those things is Jesus. And the gospel is the answer to all of those questions. In every problem we see, in every story, in every news piece, in every movie, we can see the clues of the gospel being the answer that all humans are looking for. And we just need to flex those muscles more. I've told you guys I play this game with movies where Megan and I will joke, that's gospel, right? We will just joke when there is something happening in a movie that is so Christ-like, we'll name it. If there's something happening with a story in the world, a, a CEO that does something phenomenal, I'll name it. I'll say, that's like Jesus. Because it gives me practice, it helps me apply the gospel and see it out in the world and say the things that are happening in the world are evidence of Christ's kingship and evidence of our undependability, his objectiveness and our subjectiveness. I read stories with my kids and we just got out Calvin and Hobbes, which was a comic book I grew up on when I was young. We just got A Light in the Attic, Shel Silverstein. And I read through these things, and it's amazing how when you read them when you're young, you get them one way. And when you read them when you're old, they're just as good. But you identify with different characters. You have different needs. The gospel is always applicable. And Jesus can take it to Nicodemus the same way he can take it to a wedding, the same way he can take it to the temple, the same way next week he will take it to a woman at a well. And every time it will be profound, and it will be the answer. And so, our problem isn't that we don't understand what the gospel is. Our problem is that we don't exercise applying it in our culture, in our space, where we live, with the people we're at. So we haven't exercised it. We haven't gotten comfortable with it. We're not what they call fluid, like you would be with the language. Because here's what the gospel does. The gospel centers us. It's, in school, I did figure drawing in art school. And when you draw the figure, when you draw any person, a portrait, a face, The biggest thing to get the likeness is proportion. And the only way you get proportion is by constantly visiting and revisiting the hips and the shoulders and the spine and just making those little changes and augmenting things. And then finally, as you begin to build it out, looking at the whole thing as one, centered on particular parts, putting them in proportion with each other, you begin to get a likeness, a truth, an objectivity. So if the gospel is the centering points for us, the points in which we are constantly comparing and bringing to bear and realigning our drawing so that they fit with the true likeness that we know must be the case, we begin to become more sanctified Christians. We begin to be able to have the sight of what Jesus calls is seeing the kingdom. And the only way we can do that is if we are born again, he says. Imagine this. This is what being born again feels like. Squeezing yourself through a filter like a lemon, right? Or like like a colander and squeezing something through it. Not everything can get through. Yes, the gospel is painful. Yes, being born again is painful. Yes, it's going to be hard. There's a reason Nicodemus is afraid. Because he's facing a loss. He's facing the favor of other people. And he is saying, I would rather have the favor of other people than the favor of God. I don't want to pass through that filter. I don't, I'm afraid of what it will take away from me. And that's our fear, too. We're afraid of the loss. We're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of losing the arm's length and it being all up in our business and not being able, getting so defensive and just saying, Jesus, get away. It's too painful right now. But he says, I'm working good things out for you. In verse 8, he says, he uses this just incredible. John's an incredible writer. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, John's working in all kinds of double meanings here, and he does this a lot. The wind, the pneuma, is a Greek word. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. The other cognate for that word, you hear its voice. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, just like the wind blows and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from and where it goes, so the spirit blows and where it wishes. And when you hear its voice, you hear it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it will go. So it is to everyone who is born of the spirit. He's saying, once you're passing through that filter into the born again with the kingdom sight, you don't even know where the wind is going to take you. There's no way to know it until you pass through it. And I think this would ring true for anybody who has lived out their faith in painful ways. That we fall so in love with what we have around us that we lose faith in where the wind will take us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, Beware of those who have a love for community over a love for God within the church. I am guilty of that you guys. I have a love sometimes for community over where God wants to take the community. I have a love that everybody would just be happy like Nicodemus and the reality is no one can really be happy as humans unless we are all connected upward to God and so it's essentially saying this we overvalue our horizontal interconnectedness And we don't see that once we are vertically connected to the Father, he will move us all as he wishes in a perfectly orchestrated plan that will look as though the wind has come and swept and is blowing us different places. Some of us may leave this church and it will feel like we have such a loss if we were horizontally so overconnected. We may even get upset and say, how can you be a Christian and leave us? But if we trust and we are vertically connected and we know that he is orchestrating all of these vertical connections, sometimes grouping us together and sometimes scattering us outward, it will not damage our faith. In fact, our fear of missing out will turn to what I saw in a meme that Megan shared with me the other day, our JOMO, our joy of missing out. I love that. Our joy of missing out. Because this person, I don't know if they were writing from a Christian perspective, but I could see the joy of missing out, saying, oh, don't worry about what's going on in the news, just take a hike. There's a joy in missing out. But it's so much more than that. It's not a joy in just missing things. It's a joy in the divine connection and knowing that, yes, you will miss out on things in that horizontal level, but they're such a faint example because you have the gospel centered and you know the likeness is true, and you know that your life is following King Jesus. And it will be full of mystery and adventure, and it will be inexplicable at times. But you must always be able to feel the wind and hear the voice, not explaining where it came from. Orthodoxy is great, but orthodoxy tends for itself to be treating the gospel as a math problem. And say, oh yeah, I know exactly what, did you, how did you hear that voice and where did you hear it? Tell me a little more, because I'm going to diagnose it and tell you if you heard the Spirit, because I know that kind of stuff, because I know my Bible. That can be dangerous. You don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going to go. And I think that's hard for many of us to hear, because we're so much like Nicodemus. And we have to remember that sometimes it gets messy. Sometimes you've got to erase the whole drawing and get your centers back on and build it up from scratch. Because if you just keep going on what you had, it will look nothing like what you were after. And that's what's happening with Nicodemus. Nicodemus would be pulled by the Spirit, both by his guilt or his regret or his followership, but he would still be pulled, just as John talks about, from darkness to the light. And I fervently believe that Nicodemus walked out of that experience as one of the followers of Jesus, that that was his final outing of himself. We don't know. But it certainly fits John's theology that Nicodemus struggled in the darkness and eventually came to the light, to Jesus, the forgiver of our sins. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would challenge us as we um, struggle to be Christians in a place, in a time which is pulling us in so many different directions that we could, that we could desire for you to remake us if we need to be remade in this time. That we would get involved. That we would challenge and try and discern where the gospel is. That we would not puff up in defensiveness when our ways of thinking are tried. But that we would listen closely. That we would view you as our center. And that we would build our lives, even if it means tearing a lot of it down, that we would build them on you.